let's uh, let's pick up a couple of threads we've already touched on and uh, take them a little further, elaborate them a little more, weave um, them together a little more um, regarding this whole soul-making dynamic. <clears throat> so one of the things we said uh, quite early on was that the way we are defining Eros, and it really isn't, these definitions are not about who's right and who's wrong or whatever, um, but the way we are defining Eros is um, not the way some people um, have defined it historically, and some people still do, um, which I think I think comes from the Neoplatonic tradition. Um, we are not defining it as, um, or, or saying that it is a drive or force to unification, to union. Um, Rather, in contrast to that, we are saying, we have been saying that um, Eros, in the way that we're using that word, Eros as we define it, preserves and creates or discovers tunus. So it's not an uh, inclination, a movement to oneness, to melting, to unification. Rather, if, if we pay attention to this thing, this aspect of our experience, of our <clears throat> phenomenological uh, movement that we can observe, we're calling Eros, we, we can see that Eros preserves and creates or discovers tunus. Why? Because Eros is in, in, in the service of it and is part of um, the soul-making movement, the soul-making dynamic, the dynamic of Eros Psyche Logos. And soul-making, as we've also said and explained, as we can observe in our experience, soul-making um, brings an increase of otherness, an increase of um, the other. The other swells, it gets extended, expanded um, in breadth, in depth, in dimensionality, and starts to become more complicated and uh, reveal, if you like, more facets, more... Uh, uh, more manifold facet um, distinctions are made um, in the erotic movement or through the erotic soul making movement Distinguish, distinctions are made um, of perception and of conception um, psyche and logos within if you like the other or of others so we can see then how and understand how Eros does indeed preserve and create and discover tuness and otherness. It's the tuness meaning the two of um, self and other. <clears throat> um, but we might wonder then, well, what about the desire for oneness? What about this this um, desire that we have, or many human beings have, for oneness? So that avenue of oneness, of dissolving, of merging into union, um, unions of different kind, um, that I, I, I want to say that's important. And I think um, for many uh, people interested in meditation, uh, that is an important um, <clears throat> pull, call in the soul. But at the same time, 
the avenue of two-ness is important. So both these avenues of oneness and of two-ness, if we have this erotic avenue preserving the two-ness, they're both important. I want to say we can have both. We can have both. We can know both. But <clears throat> let's go into this a little more, because if we actually examine uh, personally the desire for oneness, and sometimes even a longing for oneness, what actually is it? Um, I, I would say, on inspection, it's actually a desire to know oneness or, or of some kind, a oneness of love or of beingness or awareness or whatever it is, or a desire to know the unfabricated, which is another kind of oneness we could say. It's a desire to know. It's not so much a desire to become one with that oneness, um, or the unfabricated, or what, to dissolve uh, into a, a permanent union. So it's a desire to know something, not to dissolve permanently into some union. This is interesting. In the classic Pali Canon texts, um, as well as other um, uh, spiritual contemplative traditions from uh, religious traditions from around that time and before um, and afterwards, um, the the kind of ultimate goal of the path was could be considered as exactly that: some kind of permanent dissolution or union. Um, ending of the rebirth of a separate existence and either permanent union with Brahman or whatever um, or uh, kind of, so to speak, dissolution into the unfabricated, something like that. Um, so classically it's there stated as a goal, but nowadays, uh, or even then, um, as a sort of permanent, this is the, the, the ending of all rebirths, again, permanently dissolved or unified, or what, however exactly one would phrase it, something like that. But I would wonder, that is that was that desire, is that desire there because it's taught to be the goal, or because it's really desired, or because it's actually a movement of aversion, of subtle aversion, uh, something we'll come back to later on the retreat, um, vipavatanha, desire, um, lust for non-existence, for erasing everything, turning existence and the world and self off, turning it all off, turning experience off. Um, in actual meditation, actual practice, and actual spiritual practice, what is possible is all kinds of dissolution, if you like, to relative degrees, uh, all kinds of unions, unifications, um, all kinds of um, experiences of melting into oneness, um, whether it's different levels of jhanas, or um, the eight jhanas, or different experiences of the Brahma-viharas dissolving into love, all, all kinds are possible. Um, and even what's called an experience of the cessation of perception in an experience of the unfabricated. Um, these are all available as temporary meditative experiences. One um, learns how to do that, develops that art, a skill at, at, in whatever at whatever level of jhana or um, in whatever direction, or to the unfabricated, or whatever, and so to speak, dips into that dissolution um, temporarily, and then hopefully, and sometimes it's a gradual process, one then emerges from that and knows 
uh, a level of essential uni- unity, if you like, an essential oneness with um, whatever it is, an infinite love or um, <clears throat> or infinite consciousness or, or something like that, or, or even somehow the unfabricated. Um, so one moves in a world experiencing two-ness, but actually knowing oneness. So we, uh, one can meditatively, with practice, practicing the right way, finding, finding out how, developing that art. One can dissolve to, in different ways, to different degrees, and different kind of uh, into different kind of um, uh, kinds of oneness, if you like, and emerge. And and emerging, hopefully, in time and with some reflective insight, we know something. Uh, we know an essential oneness. You could say something like that. But knowing um, implies already some kind of duality or polarity, at least, of knower and known. Knowing uh, is, if you like, a already implies or is already a state of some degree of two-ness, knower and known. There is the knower and there's what is known. There's the consciousness that knows and there's that which, um, that which is known. Some degree to different, uh, <clears throat> in different ways, different kinds and to different degrees. So what, if, if, if you, what does the you know, spiritual seeker want in wanting oneness, in longing for oneness. He, she wants to know that she is one, essentially with God, with universal love, universal awareness, universal beingness, with the Dharmakaya, whatever, you know, at different levels of understanding and perception, actually, of oneness. But she wants to know that essentially she is one. And that's different than a desire to dissolve uh, and and have that union as a sort of permanent thing. And similarly, you know, in in um, tantra, we talked to think on the on the last retreat, the reenchanting the cosmos retreat, about becoming the deity, becoming the imaginal figure as a as a kind of option in imaginal practice, and also as a kind of direction or uh, instruction in tantric practice. But that becoming the deity, becoming the imaginal figure, is, n- is never, first of all, it's never total. It's never a, never a complete um, union dissolving all sense of distinction. And secondly, it's only temporary. Realistically, it's only temporary. Temporary. So we... we this is important uh, to actually scrutinize a little bit this um, desire for oneness and what's actually happening in the spiritual um, and meditative openings, uh, perceptual openings of experiences of oneness and union, dissolution, merging, and all that, or in life with a lover or whatever it is, <coughs> um, or the flow of life in a. Uh, what's that? I can't remember the flow of life, you know, in a, doing a sport or whatever. Um, Uh, we'll return to this uh, this desire later in the retreat. This desire for oneness, for transcendence, for the unfabricated, and 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 uh, there's quite a lot involved in that. And what's the place of that on our path? That desire for oneness, transcendence, and for the unfabricated, etc. But but for now, let's say eros um, will. Uh, 
retain and engender, or works to both retain and actually engender tunas. Um, and it, it will move towards doing that even at the same time or while it knows oneness, or onenesses, because there are many varieties and many levels of oneness. Um, so the, 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 the kind of general overall movement of soul-making and the thrust that comes from Eros will um, work to essentially overall retain and engender tunas, but also unfold oneness. And, and eventually those experiences um, becomes quite possible. This, the perception is a sense of tunas, of um, uh, erotically charged Tunus and otherness at the same time as one knows and can sense a oneness, uh, or, or many onenesses of, of different levels, different varieties, and and again, eventually, um, it's quite possible to modulate the emphasis in the way of looking, or in the meditation, or in the um, experience that one's involved with, to actually modulate it towards the melting towards the um, unfabricating, we touched on this, or towards retaining the tuners. What am I drawing out of perception? How am I inclining the unfolding of the experiences? It's all very possible with the, the development of just the art of meditation. <clears throat> but there is... Uh, um, eros keeps uh, an erotic tension in, in the relationship, whether it's... Um, with a person, or um, something in nature, or um, or an uh, intrapsychic image, or whatever, the erotic tension is maintained, and that erotic tension um, is not just, you know, the wanting to act. Or I really want to kiss you, or whatever it is. It's not just um, uh, wanting uh, sexual consummation either. Or it's not the tension of the build-up of, say, sexual energy in the body, or just psychic energy, or desire, um, or, as we talked about, the, the, the tension of craving. It's not just the tension of energy accumulating in the, the body or the psychic vessel. That's not um, the only facet of the erotic tension, and that might not even be a big aspect of it at all. Uh, the erotic tension can be... Um, subtle, so it's not just wanting to act, it's not just wanting sexual consummation, it's not just um, the tension of energy, it's not just the tension for desiring union. Erotic tension that is kind of, we could say, intrinsic to the soul-making uh, erotic movement is this desire for the other, desire to know and experience, touch the other that we're talking about, that is always more, there's always more of that desire. So there's a tension because there's always more. It's inherent in the pathos of the eros that goes with the eros. And also because the object is always becoming more through the um, insemination, impregnation that um, eros gives to the whole eros psyche logos dynamic process, soul making process. The object always becomes more. There's always more to desire, more to know, more to experience doesn't collapse into oneness. So there's an erotic tension just because there's always this desire for more and there's always the two. So Eros 
creates otherness, or we could say it creates othernesses because it creates also different um, aspects or whole um, kind of ranges of othernesses within one object even, creates and discovers otherness. It, we could say eros needs otherness. The erotically charged object is an other for eros. And wrapped up in that, and the experience, again, just phenomenologically observing <coughs> the whole experience of eros, of soul-making, there's a fascination with the other. Um, there's the sense, the perception of the beauty of the other. The other is, as we've been saying, um, uh, an image, a fantasy, so they need to be imaginally alive for us. The other is an image and a fancy, and image and fancy are needed as part of the eros, as we've been saying, and this kind of um, space, if you like, of mystery or not yet or unknown yet, um, the space um, in which the whole process of the whole thrust and opening of eros can um, discover or create more of the object. So both the image, replete with its different facets and its beauty and its the fascination with that, and also the fascination, the attraction of the, the space of mystery, the not, not as yet, uh, in which we can discover and create more of the object. All this is part of the experience of eros and soul-making eros. So in relation to the... Um, <coughs> the uh, opening to levels of oneness um, in meditation and mystical experience, you know, what that means then, what we've just said, is that on the way to, or aspiring to, or practicing towards, in the process of learning to open to, or discovering a level of oneness, eros is there. There's fascination. I want to know um, cosmic consciousness, let's say. I want to open to it and discover it. There's fascination, there's the beauty, perhaps, of hearing about it or or sensing it vaguely, but not quite yet. Um, it exists for us as an image. There's all kinds of fantasy involved with that. And there's this space to move into, because I don't. I, it has mystery yet. I don't quite know. It has depth and potential there. It's unknown. So all those aspects are there, that oneness, whatever level of oneness we're talking about, um, or it's the unfabricated or whatever, is an erotic object then, for the soul, if you like. But Eros needs the polarity, and it constellates an erotic tension. Something else is interesting in the experience of Eros, and you can see this... um, Sometimes more easily in actual relationship with another, with another person, um, where there's a, a sustained uh, eros and the beauty of soul making in the relationship, um, uh, but but may, maybe with imaginal figures too, um, <coughs> or yeah, imaginal objects like even this oneness. So somehow um, that uh, this tuners. And this sense of otherness can exist in the in the in the largest in the larger sort of um, experience of eros in in the soul making field, the tuness and otherness can be experienced, and the erotic tension and the polarity of all that can be experienced 
alongside, uh, yes, let's say alongside rather than within, but maybe within, alongside or within um, a third, uh, if you like, there's uh, the us or the we. So there's the self and the other and the eros between them and the aliveness of each as image and erotic object. And then sometimes what happens is the soul-making process, when it gets rich enough, constellates a third. But that one of the things, that third can be the us. So there's the you and the me, and then there's the us, almost as if it's a, a third soul in, in that gets constellated, gets um, discovered or created. What's the soul of we? The soul of us that's constellated by the Eros Psychologos dynamic, expanding, enriching, finding, creating, discovering, revealing more. So this we then, this us, is not so much a, 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 a merging into union, but an integrated constellation of the two. Um, the very us, the, the, the two, makes uh, another kind of one that's made up of the two, if you like. There's the soul of me and you in relationship. We come together, and it's not that we merge into one. I feel me and I feel you, and both of those are alive um, as erotic objects, myself also, which we'll return to. But also, there seems to be a third born, we. You and I make a, a kind of a larger soul together. But it's not a collapsing into union. And or there's some kind of birth. So that could be regarded as a birth. There's the birth of the soul of us, of we. And the experience of that, I'm not going to go too much into it right now. But um, um, Or there's the, the actual birth of a child. Sometimes if um, <clears throat> that's where the eros and the soul-making goes, is uh, or is supported by the birth of a child, and then this child, um, or it could be a birth of um, a work project that the two are involved in, or something both parties, if you like, um, can love or in invest in. So out of the eros between the two, some kind of third uh, is born or emerges, could be the third of the we, the us, could be the third of an actual child, could be the third of a creative project, and that becomes uh, a new erotic object, if you like, or a further erotic object becomes uh, a channel for the eros and the soul-making. So all these facets um, can kind of coexist at the same time as different dimensions or yeah, aspects, facets of, of the whole soul-making process. They kind of emerge when recognize them as recognizes them as the whole um, uh, movement of soul-making deepens, widens, and expands, and refines. And I, I would say, um, beca because of this kind of comprehensive movement of the soul-making dynamic to sort of flow in every possible direction, fill everything out, impregnate everything. Um, eros also will lead to recognizing um, essential oneness with um, the other, essential, or, or, or all kinds of different oneness, as we said before. The very erotic movement, if it's allowed to unfold, part of what it will do is it will 
lead us um, to eventually um, to recognize onenesses of different kinds. It will open those mystical experiences. But in the actual um, experience of eros with another person or imaginal figure, it's not that oneness that's predominantly emphasized, or for the most part. Actually, it's not even necessary to have that knowledge or sense of oneness. It's not necessary to eros. It's just that eros, as I said, um, in um, fertilizing the soul-making dynamic, eros, psyche, logos, um, eventually that soul-making dynamic will uncover, um, reveal, recognize um, oneness as part of it. But it's not the it's not the dominant aspect, and it's not what um, is emphasized in the actual uh, at, at the times that eros is to the fore. So eros needs the perception of otherness to to, to remain; doesn't want to dissolve it, and um, because the otherness is what entices the. Uh, if you like the scope or the size, if you like, or the, the the range, the depth, the complexity, the multifacetedness, the multidimensionality of the perception of the other, that is uh, what we're saying is equivalent to the image, uh, the, the psyche, if you like, in the eros psyche logos dynamic. That's um, that's the otherness that needs to remain and gets built. So in igniting and stoking the soul fires of um, uh, Eros, Psyche and Logos, Eros, we could say, creates or discovers um, the other, and other, or otherness, or othernesses. Um, but it creates otherness that it desires to contact, to know, to experience, etc. So Eros creates more attractive others, if you like that stimulate more eros. We've said this before, rather than creating others that we then feel alienated from or aversive to. So there's, there's all kinds of implications um, for what we're saying now, and we'll, we'll, we'll return to these threads. We'll pick them up later, as I mentioned. Um, but what it implies is that uh, what some people call the art of disappearing, uh, so Ajahn Brahm, I think, has a book called The Art of Disappearing, and The Art of Disappearing into jhana, or just getting rid of the self, or erasing the self, or experiences of, quote, no self, or emptiness, or that kind of thing, um, or other kinds of art of disappearing, actually. Um, valuable as they are, and important as they are, as experiences, temporary experiences on the path in the unfolding of insight and beauty and um, mystical awarenesses and opening of perception, the art of disappearing is not eros. Eros is not the art of disappearing. They're, they're different, if you like. <clears throat> you can't reduce one to the other. Eros is not the movement of disappearing, and certainly not disappearing finally. But all these um, aspects that we've been talking about, all these pieces that we've been talking about, the recognition of the oneness, the uh, knowing of the oneness, the... Um, uh, 
the uh, sense of the two-ness uh, being retained, the sense even of a third, of something being born from the erotic connection of the two, um, even the kind of mutual emptiness of self and other object, imaginal object, all of that actually is kind of implicit in the concept of participation. Participation. Um, this is something I've touched on, I think, very briefly before, but to me it's a, in all kinds of ways, a very powerful idea. But more even than an idea or a concept, it's actually a sense, again, that um, that is opened for us if the eros is allowed to do its thing and stimulate the soul-making. There isn't a hindering, a blocking, a cramping, a constriction, a refusal, a dismissal from any side of the um, eros psychologos kind of um, <coughs> tripod. So we, we begin to have a sense of participation, participating in the we, participating uh, eventually in, um, in, in the universe, but at much more than just a material level. Uh, so I participate in the universe by breathing in and out, or I participate by eating and, and you know, urinating and defecating, whatever. Um, I participate culturally to whatever extent I do. I participate in the community that I'm in, the communities that I'm in. I participate in society by voting, by writing letters <coughs> politically, socially, etc. All, all that's important in its participation. There's a way that one can see the beauty of all that. But there's depths uh, of profundity and comprehensiveness to this um, concept and sense of participation that eros will unfold. It's not just an idea. We could start with the idea of it. But eros will not unfold, for instance, what eventually we feel like we are participating. My mind, which means my thoughts, my creativity, um, my insights, my playing with certain ideas. My mind is participating in the mind of God, if you like, or the mind of the Buddha nature. My individual mind, all the micro-movements of my mind. Uh, participating in um, the soul, if you like, uh, of the divine the eros of the divine, or in the soul of the other, or in the world soul. This, um, as I said, as the eros is allowed to expand and fertilize the perception, fertilize the psyche, fertilize the ideation, uh, we get a sense of other dimensions um, to the different aspects of our being and a sense that we are participating in, in, in those other dimensions. They're not separate from us. It's not that we're just one. It's not that it's just two either. Uh, and there's a sense of a third. This participation is creating a third. It's, it's something is being born of my participation in the divine. Something is being born by the divine, if you like, using me and my my particular personhood, my particular, uh, all my particularities. 
since I asked, I think it was in the last talk or the one before, whose eros is this? Whose psyche is this? Whose imaginal perception is this? Whose idea is this? Whose conceptual framework? These begin to be uh, questions uh, that that come to the fore. They emerge out of the very soul-making process. And so we can have a sense, a deepening sense of mystical participation. I said that participation, you know, it's a big word. Um, and I think anyone with a little reflection would, would as I say, becomes obvious that we participate in all kinds of ways. But there's depth to that and, and levels of what that can mean to us and the beauty of what it can mean, the beauty of the sense of it. Um, because in participation, the idea or the sense of participation as I said, it's got it's got a kind of oneness uh, in, in it, you know, implicit in it, but it also retains the two-ness, and it keeps the three-ness. Um, or the birth of the, the, the third, if you like. And, and in it, my particulars, your particulars, the particular of whatever erotic object I am um, connected to, opening to, engaged with, the particulars are sacri- sacralized in that participation, and as particulars, they are sacralized. In other words, my particular, um, uh, my, my, my bones, or this thought, or whatever, it's not just sacralized because, as I said, its essence is equal with the essence of everything else and being universal, whatever, play of awareness or universal love or something. Particulars, my particulars, your particulars, the particulars of the erotic, uh, beloved, are sacralized um, as particulars in this sense of participation. You understand? Because the participation needs the particulars. Participation, part, uh, the part is, um, it's not just all the same. It cannot be replaced my uniqueness, your uniqueness. And that uniqueness is, is itself unfolding. And that's part of the participation. Can you get a sense of that? It's a different kind of mysticism, if you like. It doesn't replace the the oneness and the knowing of universal essence, but it's a different um, it's a different sense and a different concept. <clears throat> now, when we say things like that, um, and in fact wrapped up in everything, uh, well, actually wrapped up in everything, literally but also wrapped up in all imaginal practice and, uh, and all this talk about eros and re-enchantment and all that, um, but indeed wrapped up in anything that we might want to take as a subject in our existence, um, is the question of epistemology. question of, like, how do we know what's true or what's real? How do we know anything? Um, what can we rely on there? Um, so epistemology is the philo- philosophy of, of knowing, of knowledge, if you like. <clears throat> 
actually, forgive me, I'm using that word um, epistemology right now um, uh, in a way that kind of includes the um, implicit um, questions of ontology wrapped up in it. So really, one word to embrace all that. Um, ontology is the is the branch of philosophy that you know deals with questions the question of reality of what is real um of the if you like the reality status of things anything of this or that uh, how real is it if we could say or what kind of reality does this or that have uh, etc so um as i said that yeah just for shorthand using that word epistemology to embrace all that that whole um nexus and flow uh, of questioning all that investigation into ways of knowing and their validity um, and their domains um, and the whole question of reality. So just a kind of shorthand term there. Um, so this this is wrapped up, as I said, in 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 what we've just been talking about, a sense of sacredness, etc., and and the whole notion of it. Uh, uh, you know the viability, the validity of imaginal perception. When we're talking about eros, all, all of it, it's wrapped up in um, in insight, uh, just into into anything, into emptiness, into even into impermanence. Wrapped up in uh, all, all kind, of just our existence, even if we don't think and we're not philosophers at all. Uh, so this is important. So I, you know, we're saying these things about sacredness and this and that, and and what are we saying about about that in terms of its philosophical ground, if you like, uh, <clears throat> the epistemology? Well, first of all, as practi- practitioners, um, interested in opening up the field of our explorations. I don't know why else you would be here, but as practitioners, interested in opening up the field of explorations, in, interested in opening up regions of soul and of soul-making, um, we, I would say, we recognize and we admit openly that we are, we grant an image, its sacredness, um, its divine dimensions, um, its autonomy. Remember I was talking about the image um, uh, has, in, in our view, an imaginal image has a certain autonomy um, but we, we we acknowledge that this is something that we grant the image. We grant it um, this through through the way of looking, through the concept operating in the moment, the the logos operating in the moment. Through the way of looking, we grant it sacredness, divine dimensions, autonomy. Without that, it it cannot have these things for us. And it's the same with eros. If you like, we can decide to see it as divine, um, uh, as um, autonomous, you know, in, 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 in the way that we're talking about, that it's not my eros, it's the eros coming through me, um, pushing through me from the divine, from uh, a divine figure or a divine level. It's autonomous in that sense. So we can decide... Uh, to adopt that way of looking, that conceptual framework, as part of our way of looking, and see what that what happens when we do that. I mentioned this um, much earlier on the retreat. See what happens when we adopt a certain 
um, ideation, certain logos, uh, and and make and 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 have that actually be in the way of looking. But it's also true, and and if you're experimenting with this stuff in practice, you you will get this sense. It's also that we discover sacredness. We discover um, the divine dimensions, the dimensionality, the autonomy of images and of eros. If and when we don't contract around or cling to some conceptual framework or way of looking that simply refuses to admit sacredness, divinity, autonomy. So if, in other words, if we're open and we're not clinging to a certain rigid idea, then we will actually have the experience of getting a sense of noticing um, sacredness, autonomy, divinity, dimensionality, actually revealed um, in the experience. So, is it, what is it then? Is it that, that we give it that? We grant it that? That it's just coming from us? Or is it that we discover it? Are both true? Do we create and discover? Is there some kind of this amalgam? I think I used the word at one point. Now, now this question in regard to sacredness and um, of the imaginal and of eros, um, the, the, the epistemology there is 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 very similar question to much uh, to the epistemology in relation to anything. So, so this is related to much broader epistemal epistemological questions um, regarding all experience. All experience. Um, I would say that in 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 the field of um, <clears throat> let, let's just say for for now, imaginal practice and the exploration of eros and what we're talking about, um, and I mean the the wider field of imaginal practice, and so not just <clears throat> you know the way that comes into our not just intracyclically, but the way it comes into our perception as well um, of the world of self of other. And that we we can we can and we should see it both ways, both that we acknowledge the dependent arising, if you like, we grant uh, an image, a sense of sacredness, a sense of divinity, a sense of autonomy, a characteristic of autonomy, um, but we also discover it. Can I move between those two perceptions, those two um, ways of looking, ideas, if you like? Can I even somehow adopt both at the same time. Yes, I can. And if we can do that and have that kind of flexibility, this will be um, the most useful for practice. Um, I think the much more mature than pl- plumping for one or, or the other. Um, but it will be useful in the sense that it will liberate our perception. It will liberate perceptions, experiences it for us. It will open and fertilize that whole soul-making dynamic, the eros It will galvanize the soul. It will galvanize soul-making. If we can um, kind of hold this epistemological question quite skillfully, and this to me is a, to me is a really interesting area i um you know historically and i think i mentioned this on on another retreat uh, other retreats perhaps probably within all religious traditions and perhaps most philosophical traditions until maybe very recently uh, within the history of humanity there have been streams which have um wanted to um, kind of uh, 
give a kind of independent reality, if you like, to uh, the world of the imaginal, or to what we might call um, knowledge that's sacred, or sacred knowledge, or something like that. So um, you get that in Sufism, you get it in many of the Buddhist traditions. In a way, you even get it in the the Buddha of the Pali Canon. Um, uh, there was a group in England called the Cambridge Platonists, uh, active in the 17th century, Thomas More and John Smith, etc., sort of um, resurrected Platonism with, with variations, um, and wanting to give, uh, or in fact giving, a place for the possibility of um, knowing, um, just in the way that we know things... At, at, in a similar way that we know things through the senses, a uh, possibility of knowing immediately in that way, in other words, not by rational deduction, um, knowing, um, having sacred knowledge, knowing the mundus imaginalis, the, the, um, which is Latin for the world of the imaginal. Um, they're actually just creating a third kind of knowing. So there's rationality and abstract knowledge, and there's um, what was regarded as concrete knowledge, in other words, knowledge through, that's sensual through the senses of external things. Um, but there was a third sort of category of what they, Cambridge Platonists called spiritual sensation. It wasn't to do with thought and making rational deduction. It wasn't to do with the kind of sensation where I touch this, um, this chair or this table or whatever it is. Um, concrete and externally uh, conceived, it was another dimension which had its own kind of immediate um, sensation, uh, spiritual sensation. So they kind of gave, uh, if you like, there is this independent reality, the mundus imaginalis, or certain things we can know as sacred, um, etc., and there's a way of knowing that. There's just a third way of knowing that. So that we say that it's true if I deduce something logically from rational abstract, rational deduction. It's uh, And if my logic is correct, then I conclude something is true. It's true if I can touch it and see it and everyone agrees with me. And there's a third kind of it's true if, it's, uh, if I open uh, and use my faculty of spiritual sensation. Um, but all these things exist independently, if you like. They just need the right tools to um, uncover them, discover them. <clears throat> so a lot of these traditions, for instance, the Sufi tradition, would talk about um, this this way of knowing, this uh, spiritual sensation, this knowing directly of the mundus imaginalis, is, is available to one who has purified their heart. And that word heart in... in Sufism in, in Islam, um, mystical Islam, refers to the organ of imaginal knowing, not so much the seat of emotion, um, but the organ of imaginal knowing. And one who has purified their heart um, knows what's independently existent in, in, independently existing as a reality in that way. And, and this, this still goes on, people just kind of asserting this is real, uh, this this kind of knowledge, this sacred knowledge, or this knowing of what appears in the imaginal, um, and it's an alternative to kind of Cartesian dualism of just there's just mind or or matter, um, and kind of 
philosophical positivism where if you can't measure it or see it with your senses, um, it doesn't exist. (coughs) So that's one option. It's been very popular, and it still is popular in... in, um, with, with different people and different traditions, etc. Um, but there's another. There's a, there's a, the alternative is really to, or an alternative I would say is to recognise that um, reality, so-called, or perception, is participatory. Our sense of reality or reality itself is participatory. Um, our experience is participatory. In other words, we. Um, fabricate experience. We are involved in the fabrication of experience, um, the fabrication of the sense of reality and the fabrication of what then we deem real. So this is not going to the extreme of a kind of a bit slightly new age sort of um, uh, all of it's just mind made, you create your own reality um, sort of version uh, take on things. But neither is it um, the, uh, the other extreme of just assuming that things that we perceive um, exist a- as they seem to, independent of our way of looking. That notion of independent objective reality um, is uh, has been kind of... Uh, nailed in its coffin, if you like, um, uh, for the most part by by modern Western philosophy, either of the so-called continental variety or the so-called analytic or Anglo-American variety. It's from lots of different directions and philosophy of science and um, in, in lots of different ways. It's, um, it's not really viable, this sort of basic uh, um, notion that we have uh, generally, that we, we're we're taught really, and and we feel as an intuition that things exist objectively, independent of the way of looking, and that was also a kind of um, axiom and a goal of the scientific method. That's what it's supposed to do. It's like um, we can we can know how things exist objectively, independent of the mind, independent of our biases, independent of our perspectives, and all that. Um, so both in the philosophy of science and in wider Western philosophy, etc., this, this, um, that the naivety of that kind of um, objective realism <coughs> has been, you know, kind of left in tatters. Um, it's not really, it's not really viable anymore. And yet, um, so often. Uh, even for people who've heard that or or, um, read certain things, um, so often, and often tacitly, um, people try to build Dharma, or or, or the Dharma, there's an attempt, or attempts to build Dharma, and the whole conceptual structure of the Dharma on on some kind of realist basis. Um, And either a kind of religious realism, uh, that I was uh, alluding to earlier, or a secular modernist realism. Um, it might be have a materialist basis, or it's just um, this is reality as it seems to be, and this is what we have to deal with, and the kind of existentialist version of that. Um, so it's often on this realist basis, or or sometimes a third option, which is quite popular among Buddhists, who, who um, tend 
to, to try or aspire to, to not, um, at least Western Buddhists often, try to, to aspire to, to not um, argue or, or, or get into conflict. Um, and just say, well, anything's okay. People just believe different things and it's all good, it's all fine, just don't argue. Um, <clears throat> but in all of that, uh, to me there's a kind of... Um, naivety, an inadequacy of kind of philosophical engagement with these um, the issues of epistemology. Um, so what's more attractive to me is, is to, to recognize um, perception, experience, so-called reality is participatory. It's always participatory. And we've gone into this in other talks, you know, in terms of quantum physics and, and, um, and other uh, you know, developments in modern philosophy and postmodernism, all kinds of things. So modern philosophy often often um, expresses this insight to a certain level, um, but often then doesn't do much with it. Um, or or those who, um, as I said, have have read about it and say, yes, yes, I understand. The question is, what what do you then do with this insight into, in a way, we could say insight into emptiness, into the emptiness of the inherent existence of things, the um, the the recognition that the way of looking um, contributes to the so-called reality, that reality is participatory in in this in that kind of way. Um, Modern philosophers seem really ill-equipped to do anything with it because they actually don't have enough. Um, they don't have a meditative training, so the actual actual ways of looking are very very limited in scope. They don't have that range to actually um, experientially engage different ways of looking and actually open up different cosmos, cosmoi, cosmoses, whatever the plural is. Um, or um, they, again, they see it. Uh, they see see that emptiness. See the um, <clears throat> the uh, way that reality is, so to speak, is constructed. But then, and acknowledge it. But then, just revert to a kind of realist philosophy, which usually ends up being just the the same kind of um, realism that modernism uh, that we're all educated with and indoctrinated with by modernism. There's a real world. It's material. Um, the way we know things, you know, it goes back to this kind of objective knowledge. Nothing really gets um, shifted or challenged. There's a there's a reversion. So this is um, really interesting to me. Oftentimes it's not um, stated, of course, because intellectually one knows, well, that's not the correct position. But practically speaking, and implicitly, conceptually, in weaving a uh, a new version of the Dharma or whatever, um, it's it's actually there. So this is interesting to me, why this happens, why there is that kind of um, backing down or reversion or inability to follow through on that level of insight and open things up. <clears throat> so I think there is a practical reason to do with meditative skill. There's also maybe a psychological or psychological reasons that have to do with soul making that I'll come back to later on in the retreat. So I think it was the physicist uh, John Archibald Wheeler <coughs> who died not too long ago, um, great physicist of the 20th century, teacher of um, a student of uh, worked with Niels Bohr, teacher of Richard Feynman and um, Roger Penrose and uh, 
wonderful thinker. Um, I think he, he coined this term, we live in a participatory universe. I think that was his term. Uh, knowing is participatory. Knowledge is participatory. Reality, then, is participatory. Um, there is not this independent existence, independent of the way of looking. So we participate also in the concepts that we uh, create, conceptual frameworks also. They are participatory. So one one of the uh, kind of way ways of um, approaching this whole insight into um, emptiness philosophically is with the notion of participation. But as I said, it's it's also something that eros, if we allow it, if we allow it to unfold, if we allow it to stimulate the soul making, we will have at some point this sense, this deepening sense, I should say, of participation um, in all its mystical levels and and, um, openings and and dimensions. Um, uh, We'll have the sense of it and the idea of it, the concept, the logos of it will, um, I I think, emerge as... uh, as an important logos, as a as a viable logos, and and also one that we can plug in and and try uh, as a, a flexible option, you know. And what does all that bring then? Then this sense of participation, this idea of deep, profound participation. What does that itself bring? when we um, open it up as an idea, when we participate in the idea of participation, when we actually have that sense. Well, one of the things that's implicit in it is, is and I'll say it again from, from Plato's uh, depiction of <coughs> Eros um, as a hermeneutical daimon, daimon, never sure how to pronounce that word, hermeneutical daemon, in other words, a, a demigod, a, 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 an imaginal figure, if you like, Eros, it, that, um, who, whose, whose realm is the realm of hermeneutics, of interpretation, of ways of seeing, ways of knowing, um, ways of understanding, ways of perceiving. And this um, is in regard to everything. Everything, everything, everything in regard to the whole um, sense and every aspect of existence. How are we seeing it? How are we sensing it? What is it to us? What it becomes depends on our hermeneutics. And our hermeneutics is stimulated by eros. So again, it's participation. The idea of participation opens up um, the hermeneutics, and the hermeneutics, the recognition of hermeneutics, opens up the, the participation, the recognition of participation. Participate in the creation slash discovery of reality. What might all this mean with regard to the Dharma? If Eros, uh, if 
we regard it with respect, if we don't just uh, pigeonhole it as a fetter, as a defilement, Eros will open things up, as we've been explaining. And in relation to the Dharma, as something we love, as a domain, an area that we love, Eros will open it up. As the, as the soul-making dynamic infuses the Dharma, relates to the Dharma, Eros opens up. I mean, you can see this personally, I think. And you can also see it historically. And this is something I'll come back to. In the um, Pali Canon, the Buddha said, <clears throat> Seeing impermanence, one becomes disenchanted. Disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Dispassionate, one is liberated. Seeing impermanence, one becomes disenchanted. Disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Dispassionate, one is liberated. <clears throat> so we've, we've touched on this before and, uh, in, 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 I think, the very first talks. And, uh, and you can see that, that, that the, 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 um, the wisdom there, the process that he's alluding to of um, renouncing clinging, etc., and uh, uh, letting clinging go, and then the liberation that comes up. But with this exploration, or further exploration, exploration, you know, sometimes based on insight and um, deeper insight into emptiness, um, rather than just impermanence, and um, and also this uh, exploration um, that opens up uh, through eros and and, and the soul-making dynamic. One could also say now. Modeling uh, on on his uh, statement there on phraseology, one could also say something almost opposite regarding disenchantment and dispassion. One could say now, or one could see the validity of saying now, or the possibility of saying now and seeing, recognizing. One could say, seeing the emptiness and eternality of images. Seeing the imaginal, in other words, seeing that image is image, um, but it has this timelessness. Seeing the emptiness and eternality of images, the world is re-enchanted. The world and the self, enchanted and empty, one is free to become impassioned. Impassioned, infinite things open infinitely. Seeing the imaginal, seeing the emptiness and eternality, the timelessness of images, the world is re-enchanted. The world and the self, enchanted and empty, one is free to become impassioned. Impassioned, infinite things open infinitely. In other words, if we... Um, uh, allow the passion, the eros. If we allow the soul-making of the imaginal, the world is re-enchanted. And in that, um, uh, infinite things open infinitely. In other words, this soul-making um, movement, the way that the, the, this opens things up, everything, infinite things, and opens them infinitely, potentially, 
potentially infinitely. You can also turn this phrase around so um, that uh, so the passion, the eros, leads to enchantment and, and, and this sense of timelessness that comes with images, the eternality. All these aspects, um, enchantment, <coughs> eternality, eros, they are mutually dependent. So you could turn that phrase around anyway. You can, some of you will be familiar with um, some Vajrayana teachings and you can see the connection there or, or recognize um, in, in, in that little, um, what I just said, that you can recognize uh, something akin to a Vajrayana opening uh, of, of, of tantric perspectives, tantric understandings, tantric project, if you like. So something then happens in the whole sense of what, what we're seeing the Dharma is and where it leads and what the possibilities are. Dharma becomes uh, bigger and becomes endless in, in a certain way. So Eros will extend, will widen, deepen um, the image, the psyche, uh, and the idea, the logos of, of Dharma, just like it will with anything it comes into contact with. And the pothos in the Eros will um, have an, it will, it will create this endlessness to it. So something, if we allow soul-making really fully, maybe something in us eventually um, recognizes that we, the soul, needs an endless dharma, a dharma that is endless. And what does that mean? If um, awakening, you know, if we if we kind of are not chained or uh, to to the mooring of regarding awakening, final awakening, as an ending of rebirth, what does an endless dharma? What might it mean? the um, <clears throat> reduction of my personal suffering or stress or my neurosis um, in a kind of, sort of rather narrow modernist version of Dharma. It's like that's what awakening is. Um, that's not endless. It's not big enough, perhaps. How might the Dharma be endless? Well, r r we'll come back to this, but... but four possibilities occur to me. One is uh, through a much deeper understanding of emptiness. Now that in itself is not endless. In other words, one perhaps gets to the point where you know ev everything is understood to be empty, absolutely everything, and at a very thorough, deep level. <clears throat> but it's certainly much further than just this aspiration to, um, say, uh, um, reduce my personal suffering, my stress, or my neurosis, psychologically. Um, still not endless, though. However, if one sees fabrication, going back to some of the original things we were talking about, sees fabrication, then actually sees further that fabrication itself is empty, too. Then actually... Uh, the whole duality between fabricated and unfabricated, the whole ground of everything is taken away. Uh, the whole ground between fabricated and unfabricated, between sacred and um, profane, 
all of that, everything is opened up as magical and opened up to our ways of looking. As I said, we end up with nothing but ways of looking and the range of ways of looking is opened. So that in that, there's a kind of um, endlessness of exploration of ways of looking. The validity of different ways of looking and the um, practical possibility of ways of looking is opened. And it's all magical. It's all part of the magical, um, sacred fabrication that we can be involved in and participate in. And there's an endlessness of exploring different ways of looking. The beauty of that. So that might be one way that a, a dharma could be endless. Another way is in the sort of, um, <clears throat> if you like, the Mahayana um, sort of vision of of what a Buddha is, what an awakened, enlightened um, being is. And the, if you know some of the texts, what that um, uh, what that involves uh, to be enlightened in in the Mahayana sense um, through the ten or eleven bhumis um, to full Buddhahood is uh, something so far beyond uh, anything that's um, realistically possible. As a Sanskrit teacher I had once, Peter Gang, said um, the Mahayana Buddha, a Mahayana Buddha makes the God of the Old Testament look like a a schoolboy in short trousers. Um, It's so um, kind of grand and far out. It's um, effectively um, infinite uh, the, the, that level of potential that we're talking about, and and so there's a kind of fantasy of um, rebirth through this um, eons and eons of time, and and the kind of cosmology there, and that whole, if you like, fantasy. And I'm using it in a, in, a, in a good sense. Um, there's a kind of endlessness to that fantasy because realistically, no one's going to say I'm a Buddha now. So one's always in that larger cosmological, um, uh, imaginal fantasy and the beauty of that direction. So there's a kind of endlessness there. There's also an en- endlessness in the kind of more pop, uh, if you like, um, understanding of a bodhisattva as someone who um, devotes his life, his her energy and life uh, to, uh, to, to serving others, to easing suffering. So you could say, kind of um, socially or environmentally engaged Buddhism, um, <clears throat> in that sense, there's a kind of endlessness there. There won't be an end of social um, problems, environmental problems to address. Uh, so there's an endlessness uh, in that third, there's a third possibility of endlessness. And a fourth has to do with um, soul-making. So if soul-making is brought in as and recognized as a kind of um, fundamental um, <coughs> dimension or direction, I think dimension better, of, of what practice is and what the Dharma can be, um, then that too... Uh, creates an endless dharma because soul making is endless. Why? Because of exactly what we just said, um, have been saying for 
for a while now about the eros psyche logos dynamic and the way the pothos will push it to create more and more, discover more and more, open more and more, potentially infinitely. So there's a kind of endlessness there in the integration, the incorporation of a notion of soul making organically into the scope of what the Dharma is. Now those four are, are um, not necessarily separate at all. You can see that. And we'll revisit this. We'll revisit this. But if the Eros is strong, deep, then I wonder whether that needs to happen at some point. A sense of a path or territory that is endless. Can accommodate soul making. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.